is a God of judgment. And you've heard people's objections to this. Maybe you've, heard, you've voiced these objections yourself. Isn't the idea of God as judge and executing judgment on people's sin, isn't that a little barbaric? Where Sodom was in the Old Testament, but Jesus came to do a new thing, and God is different now. Or if you met with somebody this week, and they asked you this, how can a loving God judge people? How can a loving God allow people to go to hell? What would you tell them? See, there's a tension here, a tension that we're very uncomfortable with. That God is a God of judgment. And so often we try not to think about it. But if God is a God of judgment, then we must think about it. We need to know what kind of judge he is, why he would be a God of justice, why he would be a God of judgment, because this isn't just a theological idea. This is the God that we love. This is the God that a couple weeks ago ate at Abraham's table as a friend. And if God is judged, then that has implications for each and every person in this room and every single person that we love. So today, as hard as it may be, I want you to tune in. I want to ask for your attention this whole time. As I was praying about it this week, I was like, Lord, this sermon is going to be too long. I have to cut something out. And this is the only time that I've ever sensed this. So he was like, just preach the whole thing. So press in. Two-thirds of the way through, don't give up. Press in. I want you to come face-to-face with the God of justice today. Because if you're a Christian, I think what you'll find is different than what you think. And if you're on the fence about what you think about God... I want to suggest that beginning to understand God as a God of justice is actually an incredibly necessary thing in our world and actually frees us up to be merciful. So if you will, flip over to Genesis 19 with me. We're going to be looking at this text pretty closely. This is Genesis 19. It's on page 13 of the Pew Bible. I want you to follow along with me. Tell me if there's things in here that I'm saying that isn't in the text. Genesis 19, verse 1 is where we're going to start. And this this text is broken into three parts. First off, the crime of Sodom. Secondly, the judgment of God. And finally, the consuming fire. So we see the crime, we see the judgment, and then we see the fire. So starting in verse 1, follow along with me. It says, two angels. Now these are messengers of God. They come to Sodom in the evening. Sam told us why last week. They're coming because there had been outcries in the surrounding communities about how evil Sodom was. And they were coming to see if it was true, if the reports were true. And it says that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, we haven't really focused on Lot that much in this sermon series, actually at all in this sermon series. But... What we do know is that Lot was a believer in God. Like Abraham, he left behind his country and his kindred and went to the promised land in faith. He was a man who had faith in God. But over time, his faith began to be compromised. In Genesis 13, verse 2, it says that Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. So he moved close to the city. 
There was security and creature comforts there in the city. And then in Genesis 14, it tells us that Lot moved into the city and dwelled in Sodom. So before he was on the outskirts looking in, now he is moving into the city. So we see that he has one foot in with God, but he has one foot in Sodom. And then in Genesis 19, verse 1, it's a little thing in the text, but it's important. It says, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom when, he came, when, the, when the angels came in. In the ancient Near East, the people who sat in the gates were the, the, the rulers, the respected people, the venerable people of the town. And so he had become accepted by the people and was a leader of the town. And so Lot was a conflicted man. You could say he knew God. He had faith in God. But God wasn't his Lord. God hadn't, he hadn't let God work in him so that God was Lord over every part of his life. In the life of Abraham, we see that God continues to move on Abraham's life and he continues to respond in faith. Well, Lot's done the opposite. He said, God, I know you, you're my God, but you can't be my Lord. So he has one foot in and one foot out. And he's become so comfortable in the world of Sodom that he's actually uh, given his, wife, uh, his daughters away in marriage to these two uh, guys from Sodom. And so he's become ingrained in the culture. And then it says, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed his face down to the earth. And he said, my lords, please turn aside into my servant's house and spend the night here. And so you can see a trace of his belief in God. He shows hospitality to them. And the angels say, nope, we're going to spend the, the night in the town square. And then it says, the interesting language is, he says, Lot pressed them strongly. It says, the word is actually manhandled, is how the word is can be translated. He manhandled, he said, no, 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 no. You do not want to sleep in the town square. Why? Because he knew what the people of Sodom were like. So the angels relent and say, okay, we're gonna, we'll, we'll go to your house and they have a meal together. And then comes next one of the most brutal passages in all of scriptures. The first part of the text is this, the crime of Sodom. It says, before they lay down, before the angels lay down, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man. So this is every single person. Every single man in the town, whether it be 85-year-old men all the way down to 14, 15-year-old young men, they all came and they called to Lot and he says, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them to us that we may know them. And I'm going to try to tread lightly here because of the young ears in the room. But the idea of knowing isn't just like, hey, I want to get to know these guys. They seem cool. It's the biblical idea of knowing as a husband would know his wife. You guys tracking with me on that? All right. Um, but they didn't want to know them in a consensual way. They wanted to force themselves. They wanted to know them forcefully. It was abuse. And so Lot went out to the man, shut the door after him, and said, Hey, men, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He's trying to, to plead with them, persuade them this is not right. And then he offers a solution. He says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. That's a good solution, right? No, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad. You're, you're awake. You're alive. Yes, that's a terrible solution. And I remember 
when I was in college, uh, my freshman year in college, I started reading the Bible from start to finish for the first time. And I would meet with my campus pastor and ask him about questions because there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that bring questions out. And I got here and I said, what the heck, man? This is messed up. How could God, why would God want this to happen? This is terrible. And he said, Dan, you have to understand that the Bible isn't just an instruction manual. It's not just prescribed ways to live. It also describes the brokenness of the world the evilness of the world and that evilness that still exists today. The Bible doesn't pull punches about what's in the heart of man. And Lot, who was a believer in God, it shows us how far he had strayed into the ways of Sodom, that this was a good idea to him. Now, fortunately, his foolish idea was overtaken. They said, nope, we're not going to do that. Stand back. And then they says, and then they said to Lot, listen to this, this fellow came to sojourn, he, he's a traveler, he came into our town, and now he's become our judge? And so they are mocking him and saying, who are you to think that you can judge us for doing this? We can do what we want, we can do to these men what, they want, what we want to do. So the, and then they turn on him and they say, now we will deal worse with you than we were going to do with them. And then they pressed hard against Lot, and drew near to break the door down. And then the angels reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house, shut the door, and then blinded the people. And that didn't even stop them. They kept groping for the door in the, dark, in the darkness. Angels came down to inspect the crime. Was it true? The outcries that they had heard, the prayers that they had heard of the surrounding communities, was it true? Indeed, the people of Sodom were even worse than they could ever imagine. And it wasn't this specific act, because we can easily throw stones of, yeah, they did that. But it was the fact that there was oppressive violence. There was all these terrible things that they were doing in this city. And so that's the, that's the first part. That's the crime. The crime of Sodom, and the crime was grave. But next we see the judgment of God. And this is where the sermon begins to get difficult for us. It says, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Have you anybody? Sons-in-laws, daughters, anybody? Because we're about to destroy this place. We see God's judgment that he is going to destroy the city. Now we ask ourselves this. How can it be that a loving God, and God is a loving God, could destroy a city, even a city as evil as Sodom? And I'll be honest with you, this tension between God's mercy and God's justice has perplexed me for years. How can a merciful God also be a judging God? How can those two be the case? Usually what happens in our lives is we choose, okay, we're gonna just believe one thing about God and not really emphasize the other. And so some of us think of God as a God of justice. And so the idea that God punishes evil is really comfortable for you. So you can go ahead and flip, flip the next tech, uh, slide. I got a penny here. Now, you guys, what is that right there on the penny? Oh, only kids in the room. What is that? You all know what that is? Anybody been to Washington, D.C.? No, that's, that's the Lincoln Memorial. Um, that's right, a little pop quiz. You guys all failed. Um, <laughs> that is the Lincoln Memorial, and uh, it's, it's a really, it's a powerful... Um, thing, there's steps that go up, and you can see Lincoln sitting there up on, um, on a seat, right? And so I want to I suggest for us that this is the idea of, of God being just. 
That God is just over all things. And some people really love that idea. Hey, there's not going to be very many people in heaven, just a few, like lots of people in hell. That's a great thing. God is just. He punishes the wicked. But then the grace of God, and when people preach on grace, it makes them pretty uncomfortable. So there's that. There's the justice of God. And then on the other side of the coin is the mercy of God. And so that's not God's face. Um, that is Abraham Lincoln's face. But I want you to imagine that that's the face of God. God's shining his face. And a lot of us are very comfortable with that idea that God is merciful, God is gracious, God for, is, is an abundantly forgiving. And hell, there's probably very little people at all in hell, only like Hitler, because he's got to go to hell, right? Um, so there's this tension that God... How can God be merciful and just it? And I'm going to be relying on a book that was incredibly helpful for me in this regard. It's a book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. So if there's quotes that I say that you like, go there to get the quotes. It's called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. So this isn't, a lot of these great ideas are not my great ideas. I'm just sharing what I've found. We struggle because there's a tension there. And especially, how can a loving God have righteous anger towards people? And Rebecca Pippard, a writer, says this. Think about how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Think about somebody in our life that you can just see is going down a path of self-destruction. How do we respond? Do we respond with benign tolerance? Hey, live and let live. As we might towards a stranger? Far from it, she says. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath and justice is not a cranky explosion, but a settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating at the inside of the human race, which he loves with his whole being. So how can it be that a loving God brings justice. If you look at verse 13, it tells us why the city was to be destroyed. Verse 13 says, for we are about to destroy this place because, here's why, the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. This violence of Sodom was not their first offense. For years and years and years and years, the victims in the surrounding town had been crying for justice. They had been like, God, every time we send someone there to do business, something terrible happens to them. Every time that the city wages war against other people. And so the cries of justice have been heard by God. And those cries, we can hear them today. The people in Syria crying for justice against the oppressors of ISIS. The one who's been abused cries, God, give me justice. You see, we need a God of justice because justice and mercy are two sides of the same coin. You can go ahead and put up that next slide. Think about it. When God executes justice on the oppressor, it is mercy for the oppressed, right? When God comes and brings justice on people who are oppressing and, and abusing people, it's mercy on that, those who are being abused. And so God's mercy and justice are two sides of the same coin. 
And when we try to strip God of being a God of justice and judgment and make him merely into a lamb and forget that he's a lion that protects his children and hates evil, and if you've ever been sinned against in a terrible way, you know what I'm talking about. Your soul cries for justice, and God hears you. He's not just a lamb, he's a lion. We sang it today. Our our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and he's fighting our battles. G.K. Chesterton says this about holding God's justice and mercy in tension when he says, we must combine furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. God is a God of justice. And we are to follow the lion of justice into the world to do justice. We are to be a people God commands us to do justice, to follow him into the world. This past week, there was a team in Guatemala. And they were taking people who the world had looked down on, who the government didn't care for, who lived in trash heaps, and they were building houses for them and showing them that they had worth and they were precious in the eyes of God. They were doing justice. A friend of mine works to set sexual slaves free. She's doing justice. She's following God into the world to do justice. God is against injustice. He is a God of justice. And so in your faith, are you underemphasizing God's justice and neglecting his work of justice in the world? Are you uncomfortable with God being just? Now we might think, won't emphasizing God's justice make us violent? Or angry people? Or in our, in our everyday lives, if somebody kind of slights us at work, isn't emphasizing God's justice make us less likely to forgive and to seek reconciliation, right? I mean, that's my, why I've never kind of like, I've never wanted to study the God of justice because I'm afraid I'm going to become a jerk. Um, but a Croatian, a Croatian theologian from Yale, a guy named Miroslav Volf, who lived in the Balkans uh, during the Bosnian genocide, writes that emphasizing God's judgment doesn't actually have this effect. And pay, pay attention here. It's a little bit of a long quote. He says, If God were not angry at injustice and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. He says, my idea, my belief, is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. That idea will not be popular with many in the West. But, and I think it's a really good word to us, He says, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from belief in God's refusal to judge. And he says, in a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, this idea of God's refusal to judge will invariably die with other pleasant ideas of the liberal mind. He says that actually, Our lack of belief in a God of justice is what nourishes violence because our human nature is to seek violence. And so if there is no ultimate justice, if no one will ever answer to God, then they need to answer to us, right? 
And we will desire vengeance for them. And we will try to make things right. And we will take up the sword. But a belief in God's justice frees us and allows God to be the judge. Allows God, when he says, vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord. That doesn't mean vengeance is mine. It's God, I'm going to leave justice to you. Because one day my abusers will face their due, if not in this life, then in the next. And that allows us freedom to relinquish our need to retaliate and freedom even to forgive those who have sinned against us. And we saw this in in the shooting in Charleston. They didn't forgive because they were weak. They forgave because they knew that God would ultimately bring justice. And so they could extend mercy. So letting the... God be the lion of justice frees us to be like him. It frees us to be lambs of mercy in this world. We see it in this passage. God destroys Sodom and it's mercy to the victims of the land. So we've seen the crime, the crime of Sodom. We see the judgment of God. And now for the consuming fire. Now we're going to skip ahead to the end of the passage. And then we're going to go back and look at Lot's life towards the end of the sermon. So if you want to, go with me to verse 23. It says, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. So he escaped out of the city and went to a city called Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what even grew on the ground. And here's the first time in the whole Bible that we see poetic imagery of fire to signify God's judgment. And this same image is picked up on all the way down to Christ. Christ talks about judgment talks about hell and he uses the image of fire. Now this is where the sermon really gets uncomfortable, right? Because it's one thing to talk about cosmic justice, but when you talk about individual justice to individual people, how do we understand that? It's not something we like to talk about, but Jesus describes hell as a reality. He doesn't pull punches. Why? Because he loves us. He talks about hell actually three times as much as he talks about heaven. He took the idea of hell seriously. So the question then becomes why? Why fire? Why this imagery of fire? And I want us to think about what fire does. It consumes. It disintegrates everything around it. If you've ever seen a house burn to the ground, it disintegrates everything. And all you're left with is a little pile of ashes. And if you think about it, that is exactly what sin does. Sin, by its very definition, is self-centeredness that consumes us. We see it in our lives, we see it in other people's lives, how self-centeredness literally destroys someone's soul. Bitterness that eats away. Envy that destroys relationships. Anxiety that makes your bones waste away. Gossip that slowly eats away at trust. Sin absolutely consumes us. That's what it does. Now, I want you to ask yourself this. What if when we die, we don't end, but spiritually our life extends into eternity? Hell, then, isn't just a destination. It's a trajectory. 
living a self-absorbed, self-centered, self-consumed life that goes on forever and ever and ever. Looks a lot like fire, doesn't it? You see, the fire that consumed Sodom was a fire that had been consuming their souls every day up until that point. And all that God did is, is gave them the end of what they had been living. We tend to think about hell as God giving us time, but when we haven't made the right choices at the end of our lives, he casts us into hell for eternity, and we poor souls fall through the space and cry out for mercy and say, God, have mercy, please. And God says, too late, you had your chance. But that's not really the way that it works, is it? The reality is Sodom had been living in hell the entire time consumed by their sin and selfishness and consuming the communities around them. If hell is the absence of God, they had been living in the absence of God, saying, God, we don't want you here for a long time. See, hell is a trajectory of the soul. C.S. Lewis says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. It's that each of us, there is something growing that will be hell, if not nipped in the bud. I want us to think about a good character to help us understand this is Gollum, right? From Lord of the Rings. What does Gollum have? The ring, right? His precious. And that little ring, that little thing, a little piece of power, slowly destroys him, doesn't it? It turns him from Schmeagol into Gollum. He's consumed by it. He's obsessed with it. And eventually he jumps into a volcano and dies after the ring because he can't let it go. And so hell isn't just a destination, it's a trajectory. And fire eventually consumes Sodom because Sodom had already been consumed by sin. So that's the crime of Sodom. We've seen it. And it was destroying everybody around him. And we've seen the judgment of God, that he's a lion of justice who brings justice to the oppressors in order to set the victims free, and then the consuming fire. So how do we respond? How do we respond? The reality is we have a part in this story, every single one of us. And the passage has a number of characters, but I'm going to point out two of them that can maybe lead us in our response. The first is the brothers-in-law. I'm sorry, the sons-in-law, Lot's sons-in-law. Lot came to them and said, he knew that the place was going to be destroyed, and he said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But it says this, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They stayed in the city because they thought it was a joke. The reality is, 4,000 years ago, it was unpopular to think about God as a God of judgment. And it's just as, if not more, unpopular to think about judgment today. But that doesn't make it any less real. Just because people don't believe in it doesn't mean that it's not real. Jesus took it seriously. He took it so seriously that he died to save us from it. Why would Jesus die? It would make no sense at all if not to save us from ourselves, from that self-consumption that will ultimately destroy us for eternity. Why? To set us free. He died so that we could be free. 
And so today, I don't like preaching on this subject, but I want to encourage you, if you've thought of judgment as a joke, it's not a joke. And then there's Lot. Lot, like we, we heard before, he was a believer in God. But listen to what he does. In verse 15, it says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away by the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and the two daughters by the hand, and the Lord, being merciful to him, brought him out and set him outside the city. Did you hear that? Have you ever noticed that before? Lot lingered. He knew it was going to be destroyed at bedtime, but all through the night he waited. And even in the morning, he lingered. Why? Because he had his feet in Sodom and his foot in God's camp. And he was intention. And the reality is he had built his whole life, all of his possessions, all of his power, all of his pride, all of those different things, his relationships were here in Sodom. And he didn't want to leave it behind. He had become consumed by the things that Sodom had offered him. And I want you to think about the allure of Sodom. The reality is we live in a world that we probably have more access to stuff than they did. And just like Lot, it's easy for the things out there to get in here. Sometimes without even realizing it. Sodom was a place where there was no boundaries around sex. It wasn't for marriage. And today it's very easy to believe that sex isn't for marriage. Pornography is rampant, it's everywhere. Think about the wealth of the city. This was a wealthy place, Sodom, and we live in the wealthiest country in the world. And so materialism was running rampant. In our lives, we envy somebody and we envy what they have, so therefore we justify buying it ourselves even when we don't even need it. There's an unchecked anger, and we we kind of accept anger. You yell at somebody in the road, road rage. You accept it as an acceptable way. There was a sense of racial superiority. They scoffed at Lot because he was a sojourner. And we oftentimes let secretly racist ideas form in our hearts. There was a judgmentalism towards people that were different than the Sodomites. In our lives, it's the same. People that are different than us. We cast stones at people. We gossip about people that are different from us, and it destroys our relationships. And there was an ultimate refusal to stand up for the poor and the oppressed. And oftentimes, we as Christians can sit idly by while people in our midst are being oppressed because we don't want to stand up. See, the reality is the things out there get in here and they will consume us. And so this week, I want for you to really spend some time, 20 minutes on your car ride, 
set aside some time, wake up a little bit early, and I want you to ask, I want to ask this question, what is consuming you? What is your precious? What is that thing in your life that you don't want to let go of? And you've been sensing God saying, I want that. That's not good for you. You're addicted to shopping. I want that. You've been talking crap about people behind their back. Oh, I want, I want that, that, that addiction that you have. I want that. It's not good for you. It's going to destroy you. What is it that's consuming you? Ask him. I asked him this morning during confession time and he told me something and I was like, ooh, I don't want to touch that. All of us have things in our lives we don't want to give to God and they're consuming us. And I, and I want for you to think about it this week. And then I want you to do something. I want you to trace that trajectory out 20 years from now. If you leave it unchecked, what kind of hell is that going to create for you, for your family? What kind of hell is that going to create in your life? It may consume you. You want out? You ready for the gospel? You're like, please, no more. This is so hard. And it is hard. Here's the deal. There's only one way out. There's only one hand that can lead you out. And it's not self-help. It's not therapy. It's not this. It's not that. All these different things seem fantabulous. They seem fantastic. And that's what we hear. If I can just pick myself up. I don't know why I said fantabulous. (laughs) I was watching a documentary on Netflix about this guy named Anthony Robbins and he's this self-help guru and I was transfixed because he was able to bring transformations and breakthroughs in people's lives and I was like, man, this guy's amazing. And I was like, that's what we do, right, as Christians. We bring transformation in people's life. You're right, we do that. Therapy's good. Getting help is good. Confessing to other people is good. But here's the deal. Self-help cannot ultimately help you for eternity. You know why? Because God is just. And that little sin that you think is just your little thing will consume you if you don't give it to the Lord. There's only one hand. Sam preached on it this past Sunday. And the hand that can lead us out is the nail-pierced hand of Jesus Christ. It's the only hand that you can take, that you can know for sure will lead you out. Why? Because he took the judgment of sin. Because God poured out justice on him. Why? For your specific little sin that you don't think is a big deal, but will ultimately destroy you. And Jesus said, I'll take that. I'll take that fire. I'll take that pain on myself so that I can lead you out. We sang it this morning. Our God is a lamb, a lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chain. That's the only thing that can set us free. A lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God's justice was poured out on Christ so that we could receive the mercy of God. So let him take your hand and lead you out and do not look back. Whatever it is, don't look back. 
So if this is your first time or this is your 400th time, I want you to take the hand of Christ and don't look back. Give it to him. God is a lion of justice who will defend you and he is a lamb who will cleanse you. For God is a lion of justice and a lamb of mercy. Take his hand and don't look back. Take his hand and don't look back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would move among us this week. Help us not to avoid that question. Help us not rest this week until we ask that question to you. What is consuming us? And Lord, give us grace to hand it over to you. And Lord, give us grace and love for those in our lives who don't know you, that we too could help walk them to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.